Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassetchapel.com. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 2 Kings, chapter 19. Now, our interest is 2 Kings 18 and 19, but we're going to take a couple of Sundays to work through these verses. But we're going to begin with... um, with two kings. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 of chapter 19. Just a little context. So there is an evil king, Sennacherib of Assyria. He is making threats to God's people. And by way of messenger and by way of a letter... And this is part of Hezekiah's response to that. Verse 14, 2 Kings 19, page 277 in the Church Bibles. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the word Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayers concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. So this is against that king. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem, I love this, tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice And lifted your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have ridiculed the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its remote parts, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I, Yahweh, God, planned it. Now I, God, have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their power, or excuse me, their people drained of power and are dismayed and, and put to shame. 
They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are and when you come and go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. You came. Verse 34, I will defend this city and save it. And this is the line we need to hear. I will save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 180,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all, there were all the dead bodies. Now, we have a lot to learn. We're not going to learn all of it this morning, but we're going to make some great headway with God's help. And to that end, let's pray. Father, it's so true. I can't do anything of, of value unless you help me. These moments are so precious, God. Come in power and come in truth and come in glory and give, give us all the help we need. And, and I'm not ashamed to say it. There's not one part of this these minutes, these seconds, that I will not need help. And I pray that, for that, for all of us here, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, 1 in 2 Kings leads us in 47 chapters of 400 years of Israel's existence under 42 kings and one queen. And in those 47 chapters, we have cataloged for us their reign, their achievements, and for some, their repentance, but for all of them, every one of these kings, we have cataloged their sin. So you read one and two kings, you find some kings who do some awfully terrible things during their reign. You read on and you find kings like Hezekiah who did some awfully wonderful things during their reign. But when you read, you're going to find that no king was perfect. And like all of us here, beginning with myself, every king had some deep flaws, now, that's important to note because many of us admit we, we learn the Old Testament as a kind of collection of stories about famous people we were taught to be more like instead of a single story about human sin and God's promises to save. Now, that era is called moralism. In it, we learn, you know, that we should be nice to our siblings like Joseph and we need to be courageous like Daniel and we need to make great sacrifices like Abraham, and we need to face our giants like David. The applications were well-meaning, but they were way off because they didn't get to the heart of the story. They didn't get to the very intent, as Jesus said in John 7, that these scriptures, those Old Testament scriptures, they were about him. Just to say for the first readers and to every reader after that none of these kings, none of them were the promised Messiah. And the best of men have always been men at best. Now, can we learn from this? Absolutely. It would be really unwise not to. But what these books show us is what the Bible shows us. It shows us that there's no mere human king that can save. That every human, even God's chosen king, with great wealth and great skill and great help, every king, human king, is a deep sinner. That no one continually makes the right choice. Therefore, the book, this book, the book, is a mirror, and it shows us ourselves. 
It shows us our sin because, you know, I can be like Sennacherib sometimes. They show us that even good fathers can have bad sons. And even good sons can have bad fathers. It shows us the strength of confessional weakness and the weakness and the great danger of confessional strength, which is pride. Which just about every king dealt with, including the good king Hezekiah. The book shows us that that God does judge sin, but God is incredibly patient and he is incredibly forgiving and God restores. He is the God of all grace who keeps his covenant of pledge of love to his people even when they don't keep theirs. And in that, they show us that God mercifully works within the deep sins of people, to work out all his glorious purposes, to humble humans, and to display his glory. And most importantly, and it's the main point of of one and two kings, it's the Bible. It shows us that, you know what, we are really more sinful and evil and weak than we ever believed on our own. Okay, we need the Bible to help us there. But in Christ, we are more valued, we are more accepted, and we are more loved than we could ever have fully known. And so we in the world, we need a Savior, we need a substitute, we need propitiation, and we need not just one deliverance, but we need continual deliverance. You see, we might get things right most of the time, and some of you more than others, but most of the time was never the standard And mere moral effort may restrain the heart, you know, keep it at bay, but it doesn't change the heart. It's like thin tissue. All saving, listen, all saving, salvation in every predicament in our life, all saving finally must come from God in Christ. Now we have three points. We're only going to get through two. If you look at your notes, number one, some history. Now, Hezekiah, which is the king here, his, his name was uh, or meant God has strengthened. He was 25 years old when he became king. He ruled the southern kingdom, that would be Judah, and not the northern kingdom, Israel. And he would be described as, in our modern language of that dirty little eight-letter word, a reformer. Okay? So, for example, if your Bible is open, chapter 18, verse 3 It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Verse 4, he removed the high places that would be pagan shrines of false worship, which, by the way, Hezekiah's own father had built. All right, because Hezekiah's biological father wasn't David. It wasn't David. Hezekiah's biological father was Ahaz. And Ahaz A-H-A-Z. He was a horrible king. He was a horrible, unrepenting king. Uh, 2 Chronicles 28.2 says this about him. Ahaz, king, gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them into pieces. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. Okay, that's just a little bit, but just to give you a sense of it, he was terrible. He shut the doors to the temple. He shut the pages of the Bible the book of the law of Moses. So no more worshiping God in God's place, God's way, as told from God's word. Now it was Ahaz's word. And so Ahaz made it so that foreign gods would be worshipped in all kinds of places, which, you know, that's intense defiance there. 
We read uh, in 2 Chronicles 28, and I say 2 Chronicles 28 because the story that we're looking into is in three other places in the Bible. 2 Chronicles chapters 28 through 32, Isaiah chapter 36 to 39, besides chapters 18 and 19 here. Three times to tell us this story is really important. It's really big. Pay attention to what is taking place here. So Ahaz, is, uh, so Ahaz Hezekiah's father, he shut the Bible, he shut the doors to the temple. God sends judgment, but this is what we read. This is a terrible truth about Ahaz. 2 Chronicles 28, 22. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. So instead of growing better under, under, if you would, the discipline of God, he was like that 19th century missionary George Mueller. He wrote before his conversion at the death of his mother, you know, which usually gives people cause to rethink some of their life. Mueller writes, her death made no lasting impression on me. Instead of growing better, I grew worse. All right. In light of God's judgment, Ahaz grew worse and the nation suffered. Consequently, it was an enormously dark time in the eyes of God. But, but into that darkness, as God so often does, he brings light. And the light this time is Ahaz's own son, Hezekiah. And listen carefully. Hezekiah's first kingly act, his first thing he did as king, and we read this in 2 Chronicles 29.3, in the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Okay, so dad shut them, son opens them, brings reform. You read on and find out what Hezekiah did was not only open the temple, but he actually opened the book, the book of the law of Moses, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he opened it all the way. And he followed God's truth to systematically reform the pagan worship his father had begun. So instead of doing what he thought was right in his own eyes, guided by his own fallen heart, as his father had done, Hezekiah did exactly what the book of the law of Moses said to do in the context of public worship, meaning, okay, here we go. Not only were they worshiping the right God, they were worshiping the right God the right way, exactly as he said from his word. So the Levites were brought back in. They were thrown out. Singers and musicians were brought back in. They were thrown out. Holy days in, initiated. Sacrifices, sacrificial system back, in, back online. Everything done rightly. The other priestly duties as well. Again, exactly as the book of the law said. Now, certainly some of the people who had worshipped the one way, the wrong way, were resistant to the change. But that's you know, that's part and parcel of the human condition. I mean, that's true in every generation. Nevertheless, if your Bible's open, you'll see this in 2 Kings 18.5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. That would include David and, and Solomon. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And that final sentence, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him, is, is very, very telling. Because after doing all that good, 
you know, one would almost assume that God is, you know, going to open up the spout where all his blessings come out and, you know, bless, 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 Hezekiah, 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 right? Because isn't that how it's supposed to go? I mean, a lot of Christians think that and a lot of churches teach that, right? You do right, you're going to get right. You do wrong, you're going to always get wrong. That's our first point, some history. Second point, the enemy. So, so Hezekiah, after doing all those good things, the text said, by the way, the Lord was with him. In the Hebrew, is, it's emphatic, which means like every place and everything and every second of every moment of Hezekiah's life, God was with him. Favor, grace, mercy on Hezekiah. So, after doing all those good things, like Joseph before him, and Jesus Christ after him, and, and this is from 2 Chronicles 32, 1. After all that, okay, after all that good reform, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Israel, came and invaded Judah. You're like, what? <laughs> he laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. All right, now let's just walk through this. Hezekiah's reform was real. It was gold. It was God-honoring. The massive transformation that took place, everything good, everything was changing for the good, for God's glory and for the good of his people. But in the 14th year of his reign, in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrians who were like dominant and prominent were not only aware of the reforms, they didn't like it, but they were also aware that there were some people in Judah that didn't like them either. So for decades, they've been doing their own thing, their own way. And here comes Reformation. Here comes God's man, Hezekiah. Verse verse, uh, 6, again, of two kings, the Lord was with him. And yet after all that good, here comes an evil, wicked king, Sennacherib, to lay siege of the cities. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, just for a moment... What do you think that that does to like, you know, like work, works-based blessing and righteousness? Okay, you understand? Again, if you do good and it's good enough, then God will always bless you. And you know, the more you do and the more you give and the more you pray and the more you do stuff, then the more blessings will come. But when you're bad, you're going to get it and he won't bless and he won't help. And he won't do nice things and maybe take some things away. That's not happening here. It didn't happen for Joseph when Joseph, remember the story, when he ran from Potiphar's wife, loved ones, as strong as sexual temptation can be, you think Joseph should have been thrown a party after he ran away. But he was sent to jail. And it didn't happen to Jesus who lived a perfect life that no one could live, no one, you know, not one sin, but was nailed to a cross. You see, that's why grace tells a better story. It tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So to read that the Lord was with Hezekiah, because Hezekiah was just doing everything right, and yet terrible things were happening, is to think that the Lord was with Jesus, even even as he was so ferociously tempted by Satan. That the Lord, Lord was with Jesus, even as he was being cursed, and being cursed on the cross. And the Lord was with the disciples when they were in the boat. And a terrible storm came and everybody was afraid. Jesus is not. He's at the bottom of the boat. And the Lord was with Joseph. Even though Joseph got sent to jail. And the Lord was with Paul. 
Even though Paul went through sufferings that would break a thousand hearts and taking the gospel place to place. Do you see? Do you see? Therefore, and this is a huge therefore. If you are a Christian, the Lord is with you. Okay, you don't need any bells and whistles needed. He is with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Christians, if things are very, very difficult for you, first of all, I am terribly sorry. But I want you to know, he hasn't left you. And on the other side of whatever's happening now, there is beauty and there is glory. Loved ones, our struggles are not always because, you know, we didn't pray the right way or because we didn't pray enough or because we have weak faith or because you know, we didn't have enough people praying for us, too few intercessors. It's not always because we missed something or, or did something wrong. Now, if I was trying to sell you something, I'd, I'd tell you it was. And I'd keep you looking at yourself and your problem. And I would not let you look at Jesus very much at all. But see, the beauty of redemptive history in biblical theology, it tells us, and this is the story of the Bible, even, even in our lack, even in our weakness, even in our fallenness, even in evil's assault, God's purposes will not be thwarted. Every one of those purposes will be accomplished. Every one of us will stand. And this is according to God's own word. Romans 8.28, every, everything good or bad will work for the good. Even when I fail. Now, we may not understand today, but we will soon, one day, we will see that our salvation from sin is comprehensive. It's far-reaching. It just doesn't get us right with God and brings us into heaven and the new heaven and new earth eventually. It's comprehensive. Every part of our existence is being, quote, saved by God. And we will see then how God uses affliction. He uses our lack, our weakness, our fear to prepare us for an incomparable weight of glory. All right. Now, now back to the story, if you would, as, as the threat from the Assyrians unfold immediately, we find that Hezekiah is a believer in human responsibility. Okay, because after hearing about the threat there, at first, he, he begins to wobble. Now, if your Bible's open, you'll look at chapter 18. If you can take a peek, there's this letter that we'll get to in a moment that, that is a threatening letter, and it's terrible, but it's full of lies. But Hezekiah's first response is to try to pay for peace. Verse 14 of chapter 18, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold from the, from the royal treasure and from the temple itself. It's about 250,000 pounds of just sterling. Not annually, just one lump sum. You know, he's trying to pay his own ransom, if you would. And to raise the sum, again, some he was forced not only to empty the public treasures, but the temple as well. 2 Kings, verse 15, you see it there, chapter 18. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. So he's trying to pay for peace. Didn't come. Now I can, you know, I, I'm, I'm so ashamed to say this, but I've I done that, not like financially, but it's just like, Come on, let me just try to appease you, to just calm you down. 
I'm just going to just give you a little something just to, just to try to make you not be so, you know, violent. Usually doesn't work. So he's paying for peace. He didn't come, but maybe he was paying for some time. Now remember I was telling you about 2 Chronicles? Well, in 2 Chronicles 32, we read that after the threat came, Hezekiah got all his men together. Officials, military staff, and he said, you know what? We need to build lots of shields and lots of weapons to fortify the city. But you know what? In order to make sure if they lay siege on us, that we have all the water that we need and our enemies have none, they, they built this tunnel right near the pool of Siloam. They had to go through 1,777 feet of solid rock. That took some time. And they did it in such a way that all the water would be inside the city and all the water uh, that the Assyrians needed would not be at their disposal. In fact, in 1880, archaeologists, excuse me, they found the remains of that exact tunnel with an actual inscription explaining what they were doing and why they were doing it, just to say that the Bible's true. That's human responsibility. Now, honestly, everything he would do by way of human works would not be needed. His deliverance was only going to come through God. It's not to say that works weren't good. It's just to say that salvation for God's people always comes totally from God. This is Isaiah 30, 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. We all know how hard it is to be quiet and trust in times of trouble, especially if you're a type A person. We all know how troubling and difficult it can be. It shouldn't be, but it can be to rest. But that's our prescription from heaven. So the horse is made ready for the battle, Proverbs 21, 31, but victory rests with the Lord. Okay, that's human responsibility. Now let's just get to demonic activity. And in reaction to this, the king of Assyria, he sent three top military men with a huge army, you know, almost 200,000 people. And up to that moment, nation after nation just buckled under the weight of the superpower from the north. The kingdom of Israel, they, they had been taken siege. They were wiped out. So you have an undefeated king with a ginormous army, three top people with a letter. I mean, oh man, letters. I hate letters. <laughs> the evil letters, you know, you cotton-headed pig. I hate those. <laughs> it's terrible. The letter is filled with all kinds of things, but it's filled with sin and it's filled with the evil one and it's filled with evil itself. They are lies. If your Bible's open, chapter 18, verse 22 you read that? He doesn't even understand what actually happened. Those altars that he said, they were not, they were false. They didn't belong to God. Satan is the father of, you know, lies and he's the father of half-truth. So, you know, Sennacherib is a personification here of evil. That's why this story is told and retold three times in the Old Testament. Lies, half-truths, verse 33. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his, hand, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Okay, okay, yes, you've beaten everybody up, but there's only one God. Half-truth, full lie. Satan likes to speak as if he has all authority and he knows the outcome. Verse 25b, the Lord told me to march against the city and destroy it. He had one of those God told me so moments, which actually scares me. That kind of talk scares me. 
This is me. Satan loves it when people compromise with him. Verse 23, come, let's make a bargain. Right? The letter is laced with evil compromise. Satan loves to imitate God. Um, verse 25, he, he takes God's name in vain. I'm going to read it. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? And it's capital L, capital O, capital R, D. It's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He acts like he's in cahoots with God. Yahweh himself told me, march against this country and destroy it. Right, God told me. I mean, I'm sure that almost everyone in this room had somebody say something like to that to him. God told me. God told me. Evil loves to dehumanize. Verse 23, I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Dehumanize. Letters scares even the high men in high places. Verse 26, you see that? Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander. Now remember, he's reading his letter. And he's speaking in Aramaic, and so he says, please, or excuse me, speaking in Hebrew, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. You're already saying, don't, just quiet down. Everybody's going to hear what you're saying, and they're all going to be afraid. Verse 27, but the commander, the evil commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, who like you, will have to eat their own holy cow. Can you... You reading that? Eat your own excrement and drink your your own urine. Sorry, kids. I mean, what is that? It's dehumanizing. It's threatening. It's how foolish bullies speak. This is a quick review. Okay, what what is happening? Lies, half truths, which are lies. Evil compromises offered. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Acting like this is from God. Dehumanizing threats false statements about God, even false statements about the very nature of God. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm a genius on this stuff, but this is what I know. And it took me a lot of years to get to this point. When a person, whether verbally or in script, when they say dogmatic statements about God that undermine the very nature of God, that undermine the grace of God, undermining gospel realities, that God saves wicked, evil people, that somehow in the letter, in the conversation, the person is trying to communicate that we or I can somehow exhaust the grace of God, that the nature of God's relationship somehow foundationally rests solely on me and my behavior, my wisdom, my skill, my zeal. As a believer, as a servant of Christ, I find great offense in that. Not personal offense, as if they've offended me, but it's most of the time I don't really care. There's a part of me that says, who cares? But they've offended God. They've offended his son's finished work on the cross. And that ought to trouble every Christian. Forgiveness, grace, things like this. That's, that's what God gives. That's how we stay right with God. And to give the impression, you know, that God is on their side like Sennacherib did. You know, God won't bless this. Sennacherib, what was he doing? Exposing, exposing faults and exposing brokenness and exposing fears as if the grace of God doesn't already know they're there. 
And his grace is going to cover this nation, just like his grace covers you and I. You know this line, this is a great line. Oh, he will never, you know, speaking for God, he will never fill in the blank. So how can you expect good from God? And, and just to be honest, all of us are capable of writing letters like that, aren't we? I hope it's not true, but maybe some of us have wrote letters like that, saying those kinds of things. You know a prayer that my wife and I say every morning, we've been saying it for years, is, is Father... And we say it for ourselves, and we say it for the church, and we try to say it for every Christian we can think of. Father, protect us from the evil one, protect us from evil people, and protect us from the evil in ourselves. You see? So I look at Sennacherib, I'm like, I can be him. And I look at Hezekiah, and I was like, okay, I can be him. And I look at God, and I say, I need him. I need, I need his dominance I need him to rescue me. So the text bears us out. Evil intimidation, fear, degrade, dehumanize, misinformation, lies, despises authority. I know better. You know, I know better. Evil tries to give the impression that God has abandoned his people. Again, evil tries to give the impression that God has abandoned his people. He's left them. That our sins are too great. Our flaws are too deep. Our inadequacies too large. And, and you read this letter, it, it, evil will just not shut its mouth. Will it? Just keeps going and going and over and over and over again just keeps talking. Now, let me just get down the runway. We're going to land this plane. C.S. Lewis, the weekend he decided to write the screw tape letters was on the night of July 19th, 1940. Now, you probably don't know this. I didn't know it until I read it. That was the night that Hitler gave his speech. And just about every person in the world heard it. And the speech was, my last appeal to Great Britain, a great empire will be destroyed. And the speech that the evil Hitler gave was akin to what Sennacherib wrote. And C.S. Lewis was at his home on, listening to it on the radio. And, and C.S. Lewis, three PhDs, after listening to that speech, listen to what he said. This is just so profound and it's so humbling. I don't know if I'm weaker than other people. But it is a positive revelation to me how while Hitler's speech lasts, it is impossible not to waver just a little. I should be useless as a schoolmaster or a policeman. Statements which I know to be untrue. So Hitler's just spewing out lies. Statements which I know to be untrue all but convince me at any rate for that moment that they are true. If only the man says them unflinchingly. You see, the entire speech of Hitler was an exercise in lies. You know, Hitler said England is the aggressor, Germans want peace, the British are weak, the Germans are, st are strong. Uh, uh, Churchill, he's, he's not in his mind. Hitler's the very reasoned one. Do you see verse 31 of chapter 18? Make peace with me. This is, this is what evil says. You make peace with me, then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I, sent, until I deliver you and, you know, take you to your own land with grain and new wine and bread and vineyards and olive trees and choose life, you know, not death. You liar. You know, again, I've been in a moment like that where that's, that was the offer. Come on. 
Come on, just make peace with me and everything will be better and the trouble will be gone. And Just come on, let's do this. That was Friday night for C.S. Lewis. On Sunday morning in true church, he dreamed up the character Screwtape. Screwtape hates the truth, tr- uh, truth. He hates church. He hates Christians. And he lies to deceive them. Now, if you're thinking the British Empire at that time felt like it was the end of the world and some people wanted to give in to Hitler, just, just give in to him. But it didn't happen. And the rest, as they say, is history. Okay, so just let's just get done. Evil delights to question God. It questions his mercy, his love. He questions his love perfectly displayed at the cross where we read nothing can separate you from it. Not evil, not evil people, not your own sin. Evil loves to say, you know, the future is very dark and God's uncertain and unsteady. His promises, maybe, maybe not. You never can tell. So you have a person in Hezekiah trying to fight it off in his own strength. And finally, finally, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, or excuse me, 19, around 19, he begins to pray. And that sets things in a different level. Let let me just say these applications and we're done. Number one, this is for us, it is a great gain to find yourself increasingly wanting to be helped by God. Everything turned when Isaiah went, or Hezekiah went to his knees. Second thing, Hezekiah was very concerned about the honor of God's name. There's nothing in his prayers that were personal. It was God's glory was his concern. Third, Hezekiah knew where to go when God was being dishonored. He went to God. He went to the one person who loves people more than anyone else. He went to the one person who's committed to the future of his people more than anyone else. And he does it on his knees. He does it on his knees. God sets the deliverance in the context, you know, of the honor of his name. And that concerns God and that should concern us. And God shows us at the very end that both human schemes, Sennacherib with all his power and might and human strength, all the good things that Hezekiah did, they, they both, uh, one cannot defeat God and the other cannot save. Only God. So when we read about the 180,000 people at night gone, we'll get more details next time, Lord willing. It's supposed to be a picture of salvation. Sennacherib was doing his thing. Hezekiah was doing his thing. God had to do his thing. Not one drop of Israel blood was shed to save. You know what the, the typology is? Because Jesus Christ shed all his blood on the cross so that we could be saved. Thanks for your time today. Let's pray. Father, will you please keep before us continually that we cannot stand in the righteousness of our own works and we will not fall at the crazy evil work of the evil one and all his minions. But we always stand right and righteous in and through the person of Jesus Christ so that when the day of evil comes, and and we know it will, we take our stand the only way we can in Christ and Christ alone. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.
God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.